exciting and it's a thrill for me to be here today to talk to you um, and to carry on in this series about uh, through the Psalms, these lyrics. We're going to be in Psalm 16 this morning. Now, I do want to mention two things about Trevor um, as far as his influence beyond this church. And what's happening at this church is very important, but there's two ways that I would say your church is punching way above its weight, to use that boxing term. One is that because Trevor had the idea and really the audacity to plant a church in the, in the urban area, um, he decided, let's do that with some substance. And there's a lot in Christian circles today that would dispute that, the viability of that, that would say, you can't have substance if you want to reach young people, if you want to reach an urban center. You've got to have some glitz and some glam and some of that kind of stuff. And Trevor said, no, why don't we come in with some substance and see how that works? And it is working. And so Trevor will get calls from different people across the country basically saying, how are you doing that? Because that's counterintuitive. We, we didn't think that kind of thing could be done. And so his influence is growing in that sense of encouraging different church planters across the country to do this kind of thing. Now, when he answers, part of his answer is, I, I don't know how we're doing it, we're just doing it. So that's part of the answer. It's not a very technical answer. Um, but he is having that kind of influence. Then the other thing is with these preaching workshops. I'm the director of international workshops for an outfit called the Charles Simeon Trust. And we put on two and a half day workshops across North America, and they spread all over the world. And so I'm doing that in various places. Maybe next week I'll bring a little slideshow and show you a couple of our locations. But we're also growing in Canada, and Trevor has connected our ministry with the C2C network, and the C2C network is considering using our ministry for all of its preaching training across the country, which means that Trevor has been the conduit for what could be a very powerful national influence among younger church planters. So I just wanted, just wanted you to know that and uh, tell you that uh, Trevor is a great friend. Now, he kind of comes across as this urban hip dude. Um, I understand that, but you, you know he's a country boy, right? You know that? Okay. He's a country boy, but he's kind of done this whole urban metrosexual thing of late. And um, he's actually become a little bit more of my role model for my own fashion. Now, I'm not going to do the hair thing like he does. That's, you know, I'm past that. But um, I do want you to know that, that I love Trevor. Uh, we're great friends. And um, I just am so excited about what is happening here and what you're all a part of. Well, enough of that. Um, turn to Psalm 16, if you've got a Bible with you. And let's take just another moment for a word of prayer. Father, once again, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the stability, the foundation, for the grounding that it provides us. And I pray that as we look at your word this morning, as we look at this great psalm, this great song, I pray that you would help us to see it and understand I pray that you would light up these words so that we could see and grow. We're trusting you in the name of Christ. Amen. You know, one of my favorite scenes in the Bible, you know, maybe you think about these places and these moments in Scripture where I, I'd like to be a fly on a wall or I'd like to have been there physically so I just could have seen that. Well, for me, one of those moments is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. In fact, hold your finger if you want, or you can just listen to this. In Genesis chapter 2, the very first book of the Bible, second chapter, there's this moment where God is creating the man, and it says this, Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
and the man became a living creature. Can you imagine being there and seeing that moment? The Lord gathered up some dust, some dirt, and in this amazing act of intimacy, breathed into the man, and he came to life. His chest would have heaved with breath, and then he would have started breathing. His heart would have started pounding. Air was moving in and out of his lungs. Blood was coursing through his body, and he was alive. What an incredible moment. And here now we have the most amazing of creatures, the top of creation. Yet, think about this, he is in a way incomplete. He's got a mind, he's been made in the very image of God, he is way more than dust. Now for us, this is a big deal for me, our bodies are not simply prisons for the soul. That's not a Christian ideal at all. We're a whole people. We're a unity gathered of the dust, gathered by God's hands. And with the breath of God, what amazing creatures we are. And when that breath is gone, we return to dust. But here is this man. And just in your mind, look at him for a minute. Imagine him. What a perfect human specimen he would have been. Quite a sight when you think about it. But more than that, I come back to this idea, he's incomplete. What do I mean by that? I mean that he has some growing to do. As perfect as he is, as beautiful physically as he would have been, as pristine as his heart would have been at that moment, he's got some learning, some growing, some development to do. God created him with that with that ability, that need, that moment, that future for growth. And furthermore, he has a choice to make. Just think about that. If you keep reading in the book of Genesis, you can read about his choices and the consequences for his life and for ours. In fact, the choice that the man made was a catastrophe because he rebelled. And so death and destruction and corruption were introduced. And we have been living with the consequence ever since. And in a way, I'm going to grab a hold of this idea of dust and say that part of the consequence was dust. A man named Oz Guinness wrote a book a number of years ago called The Dust of Death. And I think that what he meant by that was that it's a great term for our current reality. Like dust gets everywhere. You know how it is. I get dust back behind my books in my bookshelf. Or if you lift up your stereo, you see dust all under there. Just gets every place. Well, what do I mean by the dust of death and how it just gets everywhere in our experience? Here's a couple things that I've picked up from the road. How religion The economy and commitment to family make the sex trade in Thailand almost impossible to reverse. That's the dust of death. This whole system that creates that. How greed and racism and sexism makes life so hard, especially for women living in the Copper Canyon of Mexico. 
how our society has entered such confusion and upheaval in the area of sexual identity, it seems like in the last five minutes, right? Or how the Christian community is so often hampered by conflict. Or, for one, closer to home for us, how my mother-in-law is slowly leaving us through the terrible disease of dementia. That's the dust of death. It gets everywhere. Or maybe even more closer to home for me and for you. How often we're so drawn to darkness. How so often we're drawn to rebellion. It's like dust. It just gets every place. Well, here we're going to look at Psalm 16. And I think we're going to get, now I know we're going to get some help from Psalm 16. It's not going to solve all of our problems, but it's going to help. I was uh, mentioning this psalm to a friend of mine. Um, he's part of our organization. I said, oh, that's a great gospel psalm. And he reminded me, he said, Daryl, all the psalms are gospel psalms. And I hope that as you're going through these psalms this summer, I hope that you're noticing that, that the, the gospel pulsates through the psalms. Well, it really does in this one. So let's just take a look, start reading in Psalm 16. Let's read the first four verses and see what we find here. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. I think the first word that comes to my mind when I read these words is commitment. Commitment. Notice in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist takes refuge in the Lord and he says, I have no good apart from you. I think we often have a hard time believing this. Recently, our family encountered a young woman, 19, 20 years old. And by our estimation, we think we're right about this. She is attaching herself to the wrong young man. He's a destructive guy in her life. And she can see it. She can experience it. But there's something that he gives her that she thinks she can't get anyplace else. And so she keeps going back. Even if he's kind of abusive, even if he's kind of dismissive, even if he's just not a very nice guy, she'll pull back and say, yeah, I'm sick of that guy. But you just know in a couple days she's going to phone him or text him and they'll be back together. It's like she's drawn to this thing that's destructive, but she doesn't understand that there's something that's very constructive, something very helpful for her that she could go for. And again, I just say, we have a hard time believing that we have no good apart from God. That's maybe an extreme example, but I bet this works its way into almost all, every life in this room. And then notice in verses 3 and 4, he contrasts those who are faithful with those who run after another God. And he says they're going to have sorrows. You've been there when you've run after another God. It's painful. And I think this is such an issue for us, this kind of mixing and matching, this blending. I'll take a little bit of this that Christianity gives me. I'll take a little bit of this that this idea gives me or this philosophy gives me. And I'll just kind of put it all together and hope that it works for me. Or maybe we just compartmentalize our lives. And when we do that, we make compromises. We compromise our love and our commitment to the Lord. This is what happens when we pursue things that are outside of God's plan 
engaging in things that are just simply destructive for us. And when we do that, we're expressing a lack of trust in God, our shepherd, our refuge. If we could only say, oh, in you, Lord, I take refuge. I want to draw a line from this trust, this commitment to a decision, because I think the psalm does. And that's the first application I want to give you today, is that you have a decision to make. That first man had a decision to make, and it didn't go well for him or for us. <laughs> we have a decision to make, and it's connected to our commitment to the Lord. In verse 4, there are those who run after another God. Well, you know, part of saying yes to God is saying no to some things in our lives. In fact, saying no to almost everything else. Look at verse 5. Let's carry on from there. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. You know, it's great that there's this theme here in these psalms of lyrics and of songs and of singing. This psalm has often been called throughout history the song of confidence. The song of confidence. Look what the psalmist gets. The Lord holds his lot. He says the lines are in pleasant places. He has a beautiful inheritance. You know what this goes back to? What I think is in the mind of the psalmist here is when Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land. You might know the story. There's a whole long story we won't tell, but God's people ended up in Egypt building uh, the pyramids for the Pharaoh. And then the Moses came along, you know, Prince of Egypt, Ben-Hur, all, all that kind of, not Ben-Hur, um, the Ten Commandments, that movie, I was thinking movies. That whole story. They got out of the promised land. They, they got out of Egypt and into the promised land. And when they got in there, Joshua divided the lands up. There were these 12 families and everybody got a piece of land. These are the lines. And the psalmist is grabbing hold of that idea and saying, the lines have fallen for me in great places, like a beautiful valley. And I've been given a great piece of land. And now I've got this wonderful inheritance that I can pass on to future generations. Now there was one of these families, though, of the 12, that didn't get any land. They were called the Levites. They were the priests. They didn't get land. Instead, they got the Lord. So to set them apart from the other groups as special, as servants of the Lord, they didn't get any land. Instead, they had special access to the Lord. And here David is saying, that's my lot. That's my portion. That's my inheritance. It's the Lord. That's what I got. And that's what we get. So what's being said here is, is really incredible. It's easy sometimes to kind of breeze through these psalms and not reflect deeply on what's being said. And what's being said is, I've got the Lord. <laughs> what a great promise for us to grab a hold of today. And so here again is the problem with chasing after another God. What do you hope to find out there that you don't have in the Lord? Now, that's not to diminish the rest of the gifts that 
the psalmist receives here. In verse 7, he gets counsel. He gets instruction. And in verse 8, he gets an unshakable world. He says he will not be shaken. I wonder, how many of you have ever gone through an earthquake? You felt an earthquake? Okay, a couple of you have. Yeah. Earthquakes are great for getting your heart pounding. <laughs> it all depends on the earthquake. I grew up near San Francisco, so we had lots of earthquakes. And some would come as a big bang, just bang, just shatter everything, just kind of break the tension that way. Some are smooth. And just picture this whole building hanging by massive chains to the skies, and somebody just gives a little push, and then you just sway smoothly. It's weird when the ground is just smoothly swaying back and forth. If it's no higher than a four, it can be kind of fun. Guess beyond that, it's really scary. Well, here the psalmist says, my ground will not be shaken. And I've thought a lot about earthquakes before. If you're in an airplane and you're in trouble, where do you want to go? The ground. If you're out at sea and you're in trouble, where do you want to get to? The ground. <laughs> you know, so the ground is often our, our refuge. That's where we want to get to when we're in trouble. But in an earthquake, where do you go when the ground is shaking? Well, here's a promise that in the Lord, you won't be shaken. Great confidence is coming through here. But notice in verse 5, with David choosing the Lord, and that it ends in verse 8, with him setting the Lord before himself. And I think this is part of the call of this psalm, is to set the Lord before ourselves. In the midst of a noisy world, in the midst of a world that's shaking, in the midst of a world that's full of clamor and conflict. So I want to draw the line between commitment and trust. I think they go together. And as he commits himself to the Lord, he is more and more engulfed in this picture and this posture of dependence. And that's the place to really live. That's the place to really enjoy life. You know, I've never met a Christian who after an episode of indulgence and rebellion felt really good about it. Certainly, I'm sure in the moment there was a thrill or there was something that was, was very compelling about it. But afterwards, tremendous regret. But I met a number of Christians who were full of joy after experiencing and trusting the Lord and, and seeing what, what came with all of that. And like you, I've experienced both ends of that spectrum. So here the application is trust God. Trust God. So choosing the Lord, setting him before you, this is the path to true joy. Now let's see where this goes. Because I think joy is our next area here. Look at verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh, if we could just believe that. What a great passage to read. Gladness, rejoicing, security, life, eternal pleasures. And notice the physicality of this in verse 9. His heart, his whole being, his flesh, all this rejoicing bursting right out of him. 
Verse 10, he says something interesting that might seem kind of foreign to us. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. What is Sheol? Sheol is the underworld. It's the place of death. It's where dead people go. Now, in the Old Testament, Sheol is not necessarily hell as we think of it. Although this idea of Sheol would be kind of developed and well, it would be developed into the idea of hell later. So it's important for us not necessarily to read back into this and say, oh, he's talking about hell as we conceive it or as the New Testament conceives it. It simply means the place of darkness underneath there somewhere. It's a very Jewish idea. It's more like the grave. It's a place of decay. And here, the psalmist is saying, this death and decay would not be his fate. Instead, he gets life. He gets the presence of the Lord. He gets fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So the third application I want to make today is that death is harsh, but the Lord gives life. Now, after all that, though, we've got to make something clear. The psalmist, David, was not, in fact, talking about himself when he says, I won't be decaying. He was talking and making a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Now you might say, well, hang on a minute. Let's be a little skeptical about this. How can you just make such a bold statement? Well, how do I know? Because that's what the Apostle Peter thinks of this very passage. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You've got the Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts 2. This is another amazing moment. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus has died on the cross. He's been buried. He's been resurrected. He walked around on the earth for 40 days. And then he was ascended into heaven. And he had promised his disciples that when he would go to heaven, after a while, he would send down the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would come down. Well, in Acts chapter 2, we get that story of the Holy Spirit descending. And the way he did it was he came down as though little tongues of fire alighted on each believer's head. And when that happened, they began preaching the gospel in all these other languages. Because the whole world was there. Almost every, it's like United Nations or the Olympics. Everybody's there. All these people from all over the world are there speaking different languages. Well, now they're hearing the gospel in their own language by this tremendous miracle. And when they did that, a lot of people thought, oh, these guys are drinking too much. <laughs> they're drunk. That's why they're doing this. And that prompted Peter to get up and give an explanation. And so he preached this great sermon as an explanation of what was going on. And he talked about how Jesus was killed and then raised on the third day and death could not hold him. And then he says this in verse 25. For David says concerning him, Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. See, there's that development now in the New Testament from Sheol to this idea of Hades or hell. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with such confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him 
that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And he goes on from there. What Peter is saying is that Psalm 16 could not have been about David. Why? Because David died and his body is still decaying in the ground. He is saying that was a prophecy about Jesus. Because Jesus, his body did go into the ground, but it didn't stay there. David rose in confidence in the face of death. Jesus rose from real death. (laughs) David was not abandoned to Sheol. Jesus, though, was delivered from Sheol, from death. Well, this is not a surprising or an an unusual thing that we would have an Old Testament book or a, a passage that speaks directly of Jesus. Luke made the point in Luke chapter 24 that all of the Old Testament is about him. And then he said to his disciples, he said, you are witnesses of these things. What are these things? His death and resurrection. What were, how did they witness? Well, they went out and preached and they wrote the New Testament. So Jesus is really saying there in Luke 24 that the whole Bible is about me, more specifically about my death and resurrection. All roads in Scripture lead ultimately to Jesus. The cross and the empty tomb. This means that in Psalm 16, it's a prophecy of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's why we say it's a great gospel psalm. (laughs) So just think about that for a moment. I want you to consider for a moment the resurrection of Jesus. Again, another moment that maybe you want to be there for as an eyewitness. What was that like? Remember, Jesus was really dead. He wasn't swooning. He wasn't in a coma. He was actually really physically dead. The Bible gives you no other alternative. What was it like the breath, the the moment his breath came back? He came to life. His breath heaved with, his his chest would have heaved, heaved with breath. Air moved in and out of his lungs and he was alive. At creation, the Lord gives humanity life. At the resurrection, Jesus provided his spirit. Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul, wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.45, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. So, by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can make a commitment. You can know confidence and you can experience the joy of life the Lord gives. The gospel call that Peter gave that day when he preached about Jesus and the resurrection and the prophecy from Psalm 16 is to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. If you do, you'll receive the gift, namely the Holy Spirit. Choose him. Trust him. Live for him. Choose the Lord who gives life. Amen? So here we have this great 
gospel call, a very clear gospel call. Notice that there is no promise here whatsoever of everything just working out perfectly in your life. This is the great problem with what's known as the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says, if you do the right things, you'll get all the right results. And this is like a poison that you'll find all over the world. It's, it's just devastating the church in India. It's, it's all through the Latin world. Uh, Mexican people love this stuff. And then Africa, the Africans, you go tell a bunch of poor Africans that Jesus is going to make you rich. They'll all raise their hands. They'll all come forward. They'll all give you money. It's just terrible. The gospel doesn't give such a promise. The gospel says you'll have joy. You'll have confidence in the Lord. You'll have all these good things. But it doesn't mean the cancer is going to go away. It doesn't mean the checkbook will be balanced or that you're going to be rich. It doesn't mean that you won't be harassed or persecuted for your faith. It doesn't mean any of those things. But tremendous joy, deep-seated confidence, knowledge that you can turn to Jesus in your hardships. Yes, it, it does mean all those things. So here's the call. Come and eat. Come and drink. So we've got the bread and the cup. Here is your opportunity for true spiritual nourishment. Taking something physical. Now, a lot of Christian pastors, and I'm confident enough in Trevor that I can say this, a lot of Christian pastors will spend 15 minutes telling us that this doesn't really mean anything. Oh, it's just a piece of bread, just a piece of something to drink. No, it, it means something. When you take the piece of that bread and you dip it into the cup and you're taking in the body of blood in Christ, yes, it is symbolic of a larger, greater truth, but it means something. And I think you can take this today as nourishment. You know, what an act of trust it is to put something in your mouth. Have you thought about that? You don't put anything in your mouth that you're not confident is going to be tasty or good for you somehow. And so when you eat of the bread and the cup, you are saying, I'm trusting in Jesus. I am trusting that this will fill me up with good things, things that I need, things that I want. You're saying, I'm taking this in because I'm part of a larger family. We're doing this all together. You mentioned family. This is a family meal. So I want to encourage you today to think about this in this way, in, in this substantive way. The body, of course, a reminder of the broken body of Christ. The cup, of course, a reminder of the shed blood of Jesus for you. This is for you. And when you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, I want you to have this phrase in your mind. From the Lord. I think this is what he says to you today. You are forgiven. That might be the most important thing you hear this week. I know it is for me. There's a lot of things I'm going to hear this week. But here's the most important thing. You are forgiven. That's what the Lord says. So I encourage you not to go out and try to perform for him, not to go out and try to do anything for him, not to make some great, grandiose, uh, big commitment to him. 
but to say, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to be dependent on him. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Well, I look forward to coming back, sharing with you from another psalm next week, another great gospel psalm. And um, I'm going to turn it over. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The music guys are going to come. And you all know what to do from here. <laughs>